bags are packed, are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road Riding with you in the sunnier days I wouldn't want it any other Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Corinne Ninja podcast, where each week I share vegan health transformation stories to help inspire those living with chronic disease to simply eat more plants and see what happens. A plant-based diet has been scientifically proven to be better for our health, better for the planet and better for the animals. So it really is the trifecta when it comes to living well and in alignment with most of our innate values, such as kindness, compassion and treading lightly on this planet. You may have noticed we have new music. What do you think? Do you like it? If you don't like it, don't tell me because I spent ages looking on the free music sites. This was the best of sometimes not great music. I I really like it. I wanted something that was light and playful and fun and not as in your face as the last music. So this is what I thought. Hopeful, playful. I I like it. If you don't like it, don't let me know. But if you do like it, leave me a comment and say, I love this music. It's really sweet because that will cheer me up and make my day. And I will write back to you and be like, thank you. (laughs) Because it's it's always nerve-wracking changing the music or changing anything when you've been doing it one way for so long. But as I said recently, McDonald's has been using the old music in their ads for like an Angus burger or something like that for a pretty long time now. And people keep lovely listeners keep writing to me about it and I keep thinking, oh, well, they'll stop the ad soon and who cares. But, you know, I just like some new music that's not associated with McDonald's and meat and cheese and processed foods that are terrible for our overall health and well-being. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this change. I hope it's going to be good. And we have a slightly different logo. Just letting people know a bit more about what this podcast is all about. So it, it, it says now vegan health transformation stories, which I think is helpful for anyone who stumbles across the thumbnail on Spotify or iTunes or Stitcher app so that they know what they're going to get. 101, as of today, vegan health transformation stories. So if any of your friends are saying, you know, oh, it's sickly or your parents are saying, you know, raising your kids vegan is dangerous or doing this is dangerous or what about protein, you can say there are 101 health transformation stories from people who literally were eating the same diet that they're probably eating, the standard Australian, the standard American, the standard meat, dairy, egg, processed food laden diets that the masses have been consuming for decades. We all consumed it for decades only to discover that it led to chronic disease, obesity and suffering and this way of eating alternatively, leads to the opposite. It leads to improvements in health for most people who do this. Most people benefit in some way, whether it's as simple as less bloating or as simple as less constipation or allergies or weight loss or whatever. A whole food plant-based diet has been proven to help reverse almost every chronic disease known to man. As if, if you've gone back, go back. If it's your first time listening, just go, go back. Have a look. There's everything from lupus, heart disease, multiple sclerosis, many forms of cancer. There's everything. Just go back. Have a listen. You'll see why I'm so passionate and you won't have, don't waste your time commenting about how 
I'm wrong <laughs> until you've listened to all 101 episodes and then we'll talk again. Uh, before that, just trust me, it's the best for the animals, for the planet, for our health. I want to say a quick thank you to Katrina Fox for a chat with her I had recently, which helped me think about where I'm going with this podcast for the future. And it was great. And it helped me like, with ideas about getting the new logo or the logo a bit fixed and yeah, just doing a few, th- a few tweaks to my, to how things are working. And if you want, if you're a vegan business and you would like to make yourself more visible, get more, get, get some support with where your business is going or how things are working for you, I highly recommend vegan business media, Katrina Fox's website. She does one-on-one calls, group coaching, all those kinds of things on how to get your business into the media. So yes, that link is in the show notes too. So thank you, Katrina. It was so great talking to you. Okay, so this week we have on the show Robin Shooter from empowertotalhealth.com.au. She's back on the show. She was here in episode 25. Please go back and listen to episode 25 because she is a wealth of knowledge. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss things like, well, farts for one. <laughs> like a lot of people have issues with farts when they make the switch to a whole food plant-based diet. And we're going to talk about it. Uh, farts and why we get more when we make this switch, which I think many people, when you start out, everyone I hear from, my parents included, they're like, oh gosh, why am I always farting when I come to your house? <laughs> Robin will explain why people start farting extra when they switch to a plant-based diet. She'll answer all your questions about it in this episode. Okay, we'll also talk about low FODMAP diets and it's fascinating and I think a lot of people say they can't go plant-based because they're already low FODMAP and what are they going to eat? Robin answers all those questions as well. We talk about gut health and then the main focus we're talking about in this episode is on mental health, um, depression mainly and Robin is a wealth of knowledge in this area, but it can be a triggering topic for many, many, many people. Please, there are resources in the show notes. She has given us so many books and things to look at to support what she's saying in this in this episode. I've had a background in depression for many, many, many years and anxiety and being medicated for those illnesses. And I had lots and lots of struggles and lots and lots of people around me struggling with depression and anxiety. I think all of us know someone who's going through it or we've been through it ourselves. And I'm a social worker and that was part of my work was in mental illness for many, many years. And I I find this topic, it's very close to my heart because there are so many, many people that are struggling with mental health problems and mental illness out there in the world. And I just wanted to learn a bit more about nutrition, the role nutrition plays in our mental health. So we're going to be focusing a lot about on that today. But if that's a topic that's triggering for you, please tune back in next week and just skip this episode because it can be a tricky subject to talk about for many people for many reasons. I find it very, very fascinating and I found this conversation really interesting and thought-provoking, and I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time. And I haven't stopped talking about it since I talked to Robin. And I have to admit, I'm going to be checking out all the books that I've linked in the show notes from the library as soon as I possibly can and reading them myself because, yeah, it's just there's just, just so much to learn about this topic. Thank you so much, Robin, for coming on the show. And thank you all so much 
for tuning in for episode 101. If you want to hear more from Robin, head to empowertotalhealth.com.au where she will help you with nutrition. If you have any health ailment, she is so great. She's just, she's fabulous. And you can do get consults with her and get her to help you. And she is just incredible. I highly recommend Robin to anyone who, if you have children, if you have any health issues, she's just such a great wealth of knowledge and so friendly and knowledgeable and wonderful. Also, if you have a spare moment, please share this episode on your social media with your family and friends. Head over to iTunes to leave a kind review. And obviously, if you're not yet, if you're not yet a Patreon supporter of this podcast, I would be thrilled if you would help me over at Patreon. The link is in the show notes as well. Becoming a paying patron means that you are helping me to continue spreading this message into the future till we get to 200 episodes and beyond, which is my goal. You know, it takes a lot, a lot of time and resources to put up, put up this podcast, time away from my work, my family, all those kinds of things. And yeah, I I really want this podcast to stay around for as long as possible. So every single cent helps as little as $5 a month, which is a soy chai latte, as I always say, uh, it would really, really, really help. So thank you for everyone who is patron supporter of the podcast. You mean the world to me because, yeah, obviously it it feels nice to know that you're, you find value in this podcast and enough value because I know it's so hard to hand over your hard-earned dollars to a stranger that you never met before. I appreciate it so much. So if you do have $5 to spare and you can, and you want to support me in my mission to get these stories of hope out there to everyone who needs it, uh, yeah, I would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it and be your absolute best friend. Thank you so much and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Robin, and welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back on. Now, I have list, I, I don't remember now that we're speaking because I just don't have it in front of me. What episode were you? I think it was in the early 20s. Very early. I, yeah, it was definitely in the under 20s and it might even have been in the under 10s, but I, I, I don't recall. <laughs> it, was, it was early. I'll put in the early. show notes the episode, but I loved talking to you and so I was very excited to have you back on for our 101st episode as we head <laughs> to 200. <laughs> Without the Dalmatians. <laughs> Without the Dalmatians, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, and I know that so many people who've listening, I'm constantly referring people to your episode because – it it was so informative to me and I know for many, many people who want to know more about the, nu- the nutrition, how, how to do this well for themselves long term. It's so critical, isn't it? Because people can get all enthusiastic about it and think, oh, this plant-based diet sounds wonderful and I've read a success story and whatever, let's jump in. But uh, there are there are some there's some fine-tuning that may need to be done to get it working well for you, particularly if you've got, obviously, pre-existing um, health conditions, you may need to fine-tune it pretty seriously. And then, of course, the other, the other category of people who really can use some fine-tuning of those who've, who've got funny tummies, those who've got the particularly the functional gut disorders, although even the, the inflammatory bowel disease. I mean, if you've got Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, you 
may not be able to jump straight into the sort of, you know, stock standard whole food plant-based diet. If you've been having 20 bloody bowel movements a day, you might need to do a little adjustment of the diet. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that is a thing that many, many people that I speak to who message me or write to me, they say, oh, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, a month or whatever, not many people, but a few people. And they'll say, you know, I still have chronic fatigue syndrome or I still have this or I still have that. Or, you know, you see episodes, you know, in videos of ex-vegans who went vegan for their health and then they've, they've gone away from it. And you just think, I, I know from myself that the gut stuff was such a huge thing that I was overlooking for a really long time. Mm, 100%. And if you have eaten the typical Western diet before going whole food plant-based, and particularly if you have experimented with a low-carbohydrate diet, and particularly particularly if you've done a ketogenic diet, you may well have some pretty substantial shifts in your gut, um, gut bacteria, your, your gut microbiota, and also in your gut function that can make it absolute hell when you suddenly increase your carbohydrate and fiber intake. And that's what can really make people think that this diet is not for them and it's not working. Yes. See, and I think that so many people don't realize that it's not like when when my parents come to stay, for instance, they come to stay, they have two, three meals here and they say, we're always so gassy when we come to your house, Corinne. It's just a house full of farts. (laughs) And when I go to their house, though, I eat differently at their house. Normally I bring my own stuff, but I just tend to eat in a different way because I'm there. Sure. And I get gassier at their house and they think that I'm the common denominator that I'm the... the, You you are the bringer of gas. I'm the bringer of gas. (laughs) The goddess of gas. Wherever I am. But it's just that when we go to a different place and we eat... For me, I eat more at their house. I eat more refined carbs. Yeah. At their house for some reason. I'm just grazing more and I eat later in different times. And I just know it upsets my tummy. And when they come here, they eat more fiber. Yes. Yes. And it upsets their tummies. Yes. And this, this, so this is absolutely what we see when people who've been t- eating that typical Western diet, which is so abysmally low in fiber, it's not funny. And as I, I mean, look, the thing that you need to understand about gas, right, is, is that the production of intestinal gas, and let's distinguish here between garden variety gas, you know, just when, when you need to have a little, a little trough, um, versus the kind of, room clearing gas, the kind of gas that people pass where even the dog runs out and the dog's sort of going, it wasn't me, I swear, it wasn't me, right? That that kind of gas, that stinky, noxious, oh, God, I hope I don't drop my guts in the elevator kind of gas, yes. that's hydrogen sulfide, okay? Ah. It's stinky gas. And that's made by bacteria that, that trap hydrogen gas. So, okay, if we, if we just go back a step here. So the, the, the regular variety of gas is hydrogen and methane, okay? So when you eat whole food plant-based, you eat your fruits, veggies, whole grains, legumes, they have some carbohydrate that you as a human can digest and absorb in your small intestine. And so that that's a fuel source. 
preferred fuel source for most of the, the cells in the human body. But then you've got carbohydrate that humans can't digest. So the human genome codes for 17 different carbohydrate digesting enzymes. But there's a lot of carbohydrates that we are basically unable to digest. So they head down into the large intestine or the colon where your gut bacteria get busy with them. And there's over 7,000 different carbohydrate digesting enzymes that, that our gut microbiota code for. So in other words, we outsource a large part of our carbohydrate digestion to our gut bacteria. So your gut bacteria get busy with fiber-resistant starch pectins, non-starch polysaccharides of all shapes and sizes. And the one of the byproducts of that of that bacterial digestion process, which is fermentation, is they make gas. So they make hydrogen gas, and hydrogen gas is very bulky. So if you've got a lot of hydrogen gas being produced down there, you might sort of notice that your tummy's a little bit swollen after you eat. And then there are other bugs called archaea, and they trap the hydrogen, combine it with, with carbon, and make methane gas. So methane gas is a way of debulking that really bulky hydrogen gas now both hydrogen and methane are odorless okay people often think methane is stinky it's not it's actually odorless so that kind of gas is a signal that you've got the right kind of bacteria doing the things that you want to do because aside from making hydrogen and methane they're making these amazing things called short chain fatty acids um, the main ones are butyrate propionate and acetate and they do the most extraordinary things, not just in the gut, but in the whole body. So um, we need we need to sort of change our relationship with gas. Uh, so I'm going to paraphrase Gordon Gecko. You know, gas, for want of a better word, is good. <laughs> um, now, this is so yeah, good to hear. As long as yeah. it's not stinky. This is so good to hear for many people who think that all gas is just the most impolite, awful thing. So we we have a social issue with gas. Now, it's interesting that if you look at cultures with a really high fiber intake, like in rural Africa, where they're eating 100 to 150 grams of fiber a day, they just think that farting is dead funny, right? So, yeah. you know, you fart, everyone goes, ha ha. Um, and, and then they just move on. And I suppose also, if you're spending a lot of your time outdoors, you really can just like let them go fairly frequently. <laughs> No one's going to be much bothered. Um, yeah. Whereas in our society, you know, passing gas is is just not done. I mean, um, ladies don't fart. Yeah, they 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 just uh, one does not pass gas. But if you're if you're human and you're eating the way a human ought to, then you're you're gonna you're gonna make farts, or more to the point, your bacteria will make farts on your behalf. And so, we just need to get a lot more comfortable with the idea of farting. I'm going to force my brother to listen to this episode. <laughs> now, now your your super stinky room clearing farts, mm. your hydrogen sulfide farts. So hydrogen sulfide is 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 um is rotten egg gas. You might remember that from high school chemistry. Yes. And this small amounts of hydrogen sulfide gas are fine. It's actually a signaling molecule in the colon. But when we get large amounts of hydrogen sulfide gas, it's actually really damaging to the colon. And not only is, is high production of hydrogen sulfide linked to colorectal cancer, so bowel cancer, and also inflammatory bowel disease, especially ulcerative colitis. But hydrogen sulfide also causes or aggravates a condition called visceral hypersensitivity. So visceral hypersensitivity is what you see in people with IBS. And it's where, whereas in a 
person without IBS, when their gut distends because it's got food or fluid or gas in it, or when their gut moves like a gut's meant to, they don't notice it. It doesn't consciously register. But in a person with IBS, they're viscerally hypersensitive. And even the smallest amount of distension of their gut causes discomfort or even pain. And they can literally feel things moving through their gut. They're viscerally hypersensitive. So this hydrogen sulfide gas that we get because we've eaten a high-fat diet that results in an overgrowth of bile-eating bacteria, that hydrogen sulfide gas causes the visceral hypersensitivity. So what happens is a person, say, does a keto diet where they eat a boatload of fat, They because they're eating so much fat, their liver makes well. Their their uh, the gallbladder secretes more bile. That bile ends up in the colon. That promotes the growth of bile-eating bacteria like um, Desulfovibrio species and, and Bilophila wadsworthia. They're the main bile-munching bacteria in, in, in humans. The bile-munching bacteria make hydrogen sulfide gas. They're very viscerally hypersensitive. Now, when a person who's been doing this adds carbohydrate back into their diet so that their hydrogen um, gas and methane gas production picks up, now their gut really hurts. And they'll say, I can't do this plant-based diet. I'll have to go back to keto. All right? So have you seen this happen in people? Yes, so many times. Yeah. And so this this is a gut microbiome that is so badly messed up by their past dietary habits that it takes a fair bit of rehab to get them to the point where they can actually tolerate the amount of fiber that is necessary for the health of human beings. Wow. This is such important information for so many people who do think um, I avoid. And I think that also leads into talking about FODMAP diets because a lot of people that I know say I'm on a FODMAP diet and if I go plant-based then I'll have nothing I can eat. I already can't eat all of these things. Yeah. And I, just from my own experience with, because I've been diagnosed with fructose malabsorption myself and and I know apples do make me feel, you know, I do get discomfort when I have an apple or certain, you know, certain wheats and, you know, types of wheat and things. But I just know that it's a symptom of an underlying gut issue. That's how it feels to me that if if I can't eat fruit, something underneath is wrong rather yeah. than the apple, if that makes if, sense. Yes. I think, I think anyone who's sane can probably agree that an apple is a healthy food. <laughs> there are a few insane people out there who want to tell you that fruit is terrible and it makes you fat and it's full of sugar and you shouldn't eat it. But most sane people, and this includes, you know, 99.9% of, 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 of people who ha- who are dietitians or, or qualified nutritionists, they're going to tell you, yeah, fruit is good. Just look in the scientific literature. People who eat more fruit are slimmer, have lower risk of diabetes, lower risk of certain cancers, all also less prone to depression, which is something that we're going to get onto a little bit later in terms of the link between fruit and veg consumption and, and, and mental health outcomes. So, so yeah, you know, the vast majority of, of, of um, or basically all sane people agree that, that fruit is a healthy food. So why would an individual have digestive discomfort with a, a food like an apple? Well, 
The, the low FODMAP diet was developed by researchers at Monash University in your hometown, Melbourne. And the, it's, um, so it was developed to, to help people with symptomatic relief from irritable bowel syndrome. And it's actually very good at that. And I do use it for, for short periods of time. Like if I see a person who's, who's, just in a world of woe because whenever they eat, they, they have all of these functional gut disturbances. They're bloated, they're abdominally distended, they've got diarrhea, they belch, they're, like, they're, they're just miserable. So, of course, you're going to put them on a diet that relieves those symptoms. But for me, it's all about working on those underlying causes of it. If you look at Monash University's webpage on the low FODMAP diet, they are very, very explicit. This is a short-term diet. No one, no one should be on a low, a strict low FODMAP diet for longer than six weeks. So between two and, and six weeks is how long you follow it strictly. And then where Monash are coming from is after you've, after you've relieved the, your symptoms, you're then going to add back one food or, or preferably one category of FODMAP or fermentable carbohydrate just one at a time so that you can figure out whether you're particularly sensitive to fructans or uh, oligosaccharides or uh, fructose or, you know, in other words, rather than eliminating all of these high FODMAP foods, you figure out, well, what are the ones that are particularly problematic for me and what's my threshold for those? Monash's own research published on their website has shown that two weeks on a strict low FODMAP diet significantly decreases your gut microbiota diversity. And they, and they acknowledge this is not good. So what you're doing is you're buying short-term symptom relief, and that's fine. But if you stay on this diet for long periods of time, you're actually perpetuating the problem and you're worsening the problem because what we know is that the healthiest gut microbiota is the most diverse gut microbiota. So when you look at people who live in, you know, gatherer hunter communities in the Amazon rainforest or, you know, somewhere like that was pretty untouched, they have an incredibly diverse gut microbiota compared to, you know, white folk compared to us people living in in industrialised countries. Our, our ecosystem is badly depleted and I think there's an interesting parallel between that and our, our world more generally. We're causing this mass species extinction in you know all of these plants and animals and even microorganisms outside of our bodies but the same process is happening inside of us where we're depleting our gut microbiota diversity yeah it's a really really beautiful cross crossover and i think well it's beautiful and, and horrendously sad <laughs> i know it's it, exactly exactly yeah. it's beautiful and sad what I was wondering is with do you think that with you know the way we farm these days the way we we grow food the the way we the, the pesticides the the sprays the way we wash food clean food wash our hands all of those things do you think because I know that all those things factor into what bacteria are going into our bodies if we have no dirt no you know all and antibiotics all of those things have a play a role do you think that it is possible today in today's climate of how we eat and how we how we move through this world and interact with nature to get that biodiversity back in our gut microbiomes 
Probably not fully. Mm. Probably not fully. Now, there's a lot of interest in fecal microbial transplants, uh, FMT or poo transplants. And I don't know, maybe someday these isolated people living in the Amazon rainforest might make a buck by selling their fantastically you know, microbial diverse poop. Um, and us us rich people might might actually buy poop from, you know, people living in the rainforest. I would the question not be is, surprised. would we then be able to maintain that diversity? See, the way that they maintain that diversity is is firstly, when they birth their babies, like they're there's there's this beautiful description in Martin Blaze's amazing book Missing Microbes, uh, which is is a must read if you have any interest whatsoever. I'm writing in, it down. Yeah, Missing Microbes, Blazer. That's B L A S E R. Martin Blazer. Um, so his wife is. I can't remember her nationality. I'm going to guess and say that she's Colombian, but I could be wrong about that. So she's done a lot of research on on many of these isolated tribes. And so he he actually lived in he lived amongst an Amazon Amazonian rainforest community and again I'm blanking on which community it was, but anyway. So so one night there was a bit of a kerfuffle in in the jungle outside his his hut where he was staying. So he popped outside to take a look. And this 15, 16-year-old girl uh, was was giving birth in total silence. She she just, you know, and the baby slipped out and she'd made a little nest of, of banana leaves or some such and the baby slithered out onto the banana leaves and that was it. She picked up the baby, popped it on the boob and job done. And when you think about what's involved in that, so banana leaf, right, or whatever tropical foliage it was, again, I, I'm blanking on the details, but read the book. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, and so the baby sort of comes out of, out of her birth canal, all covered in her lovely vaginal microbiota. And as, as the gastroenterologist Robin Chutkan points out, babies come down generally head first, mouth pointing toward the back. And they not only get mum's vaginal flora, they also get a big gulp of her rectal flora. <laughs> it's so funny you say that. My midwife, I had two home births and my midwife, you know, the first one when I'd never had any kids, I was like, oh, my God. I've heard all these horror stories about going number two on your baby or when you're having a baby, and I was horrified at the thought. Yeah. And We're she, so grossed out and by she, I know, and she said, Corinne, do you think – she was religious and she said, God doesn't make any mistakes, Corinne. There's a, re- yeah. there's a reason why those holes are so close together. If you weren't meant to yeah. be messy and 100%. disgusting. Whether you want to call it, it God or evolution. Yeah, yeah. Us, like the it makes no mistakes. That. And yeah. I remember thinking, all right, I trust you. but <laughs> Yeah. So we are really grossed out by it, but, but it's actually this fantastically well-engineered process for for uh, inoculating babies with with the correct microbiota so so yeah this baby born in the rainforest um comes down you know through the mother's birth canal gets all those bacteria lands on a banana leaf gets the bacteria that are on those lands on her breast and i mean i don't know how often they bathe possibly maybe they bathe in the river who knows but certainly not a sterile birth and and then from there on in that baby is coated in bacteria now will that baby be exposed to antibiotics almost certainly not so so what your question was you know can we get that diversity back well it's 
it's not just about the food that they eat. It's their whole way of living. Yes, their food supply is much more diverse than us and it's seasonal and they're getting all their food, you know, fresh out of the jungle with all its bugs intact, right? Whereas our food, we wash it and, and we you know, we scrub our carrots. Some people even peel their potatoes. I, I, I can't fathom that. I just like knock the dirt off mine. <laughs> I know. My mum, really even with carrot, my mum peeled carrots the other day to make carrot sticks, and I'm like, "Why are you doing that?" Peeling carrots, I, I, I just, I can't get my head around it. I, my, my carrots come peel and all. I'm yeah, sorry if you don't like that, all. but you, when you're at my house, you're gonna eat carrots with the peel. On. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> Same. And I think that that's just, you know, I know that my mum, you know, she peels the potato and she peels the carrot and she peels the sweet potato and, and, and that's her generation as well. But, yeah, yes. I'm a skin-on yes. kind and the, of girl. And, and this is the generation who were also raised to believe that you had to dead all and pino clean everything and, the, and that germs were the cause of illness. And what we now know is that, sure, there's a small percentage of bacteria that really are, you know, pretty horrendous and and left at their own devices will will definitely aim to kill us but the vast majority of them we, we just we just live in community with them and provided we're nurturing our own gut microbiota the the gnarly little members of the tribe like the you know the the, the couple of stray clostridium difficile that that the average person has in in their gut or the you know random um meningococcal bacteria that they have in their throat or whatever they're, they're not a problem as long as the rest of the microbiota are are in a, a you know diverse and well balanced state. So can I ask you a question? Then you know you might not have the answer to this, but for instance, my two questions. I have two questions, and they just popped into my head just now. One is so when people say going out in the cold will give you a cold, like you see, there's, there's cold germs out there. What do you think about that? So I'm just asking because my son is really you know how sometimes you make children that are nothing like you <laughs> <laughs> uh, no I, I have no idea about this phenomenon oh my god I absolutely absolutely 100% get this <laughs> well he's he's so much like he's so much like us but then they do other things so he we just we're rugged up the two of us like keeping warm so we always rugged him up and we just assumed he'd be a rugged up kid in the cold because both my husband and I like to be warm but he is just out today wearing shorts and a t-shirt and he's got his school jumper on but he wants to play soccer and all he wants to do is wear shorts because the pants get wet when he's playing soccer at lunchtime sure and it's uncomfortable yeah. and i get it but i it's freezing and i'm like you're sitting in class more than you're playing soccer but you want to wear no. shorts at, at, at his age his metabolic rate is going to be off the charts they're basically little little heat generation machines um particularly younger boys but yeah how old is he he's seven don't nearly, worry nearly um, eight Seriously, he's he's going to be fine. Because I've and stopped no, having the fight with him about yeah, it every morning, yeah. and my husband's still a bit worried. And I said, I think I'm certain that in he's going to be okay. But I just thought I'd well, ask you while I'm the here. The thing about is kids he, is that when they're cold, they'll put a sweater on. When they're hungry, they'll look for food, and when they're tired, they go to sleep. Yeah. They're they're a bit bizarre that way. <laughs> 
not like us adults who eat when we're not hungry and keep ourselves up too late at night when we're actually tired and and you know and, and override our natural instincts. So no, he'll be fine. Um, in terms of in terms of viruses, you know, the rhinoviruses and adenoviruses, viruses that cause colds, they're circulating all the time. And and of course, schools, as we all know, are basically just swamps they're, of, they're of swamp. infectious <laughs> organisms that that spread like wildfire. But the state of a person's, you know, overall, what, what would they call the terrain factors? The state of a person's overall health is really the determining factor in whether they get sick or not. There are some cases where you can just have such a heavy exposure to a virus that even if you're in top-notch condition, it'll still, you know, knock you over. But um, a healthy person's just going to be snotty and have a cough for a few days and feel a bit crap and then then they'll be fine again. So even if they do go down with the virus, it's no biggie. And and look, I mean, kids' immune systems actually need to be challenged with exposure to bacteria and viruses anyway. One of the things that we know about having smaller families these days is that with the lesser exposure to bacterial and viral illnesses, and frankly to, uh, to parasites as well, with smaller families living in cleaner homes, that um, kids have more allergic disease and and it's also very likely that autoimmune disease uh, like we've seen skyrocketing rates of both allergy and autoimmune disease and they're both linked to excessive cleanliness and lack of exposure to enough bacterial and viral illnesses okay well i'm putting the cleaning items away Great. This this suits us all. All of us busy people who have no time for cleaning. Robin has given us the green light to. <laughs> to. Again, I'm, I'm going to quote Dr. Robin Shutcan because she's just a really really cool chick. She has this phrase um, or this sort of motto for life, really, which is "eat clean but live dirty." So you know, eat eat good healthy food, 100 percent, right? That's that's totally fine. But but yeah, you want to skip a shower, or your your kids aren't keen on showering. No biggie. That's fine. <laughs> it's interesting because I we used to do the everyday bath. You know, every day a bath is part of the bedtime routine. And then my dad one day he said, you know, we only used to have a bath once a week when we were a ki- when we were kids. <laughs> you don't have to do it every night because sometimes it is a bit of an extra th- job. You know, it's oh, an extra yes, job. Just something else on the on the agenda. And so yeah. now I've reduced it to three nights a week. Unless they're if they if they go to the swimming lessons or the pool or something happens oh, where they've sure. you know yeah. wet the bed whatever dirty obviously. or you've got to get the chlorine off them then then by all means but but let's face it how many of us actually get really dirty in our everyday lives unless unless you do some really grotty job then chances are you you don't. You don't get dirty enough to require daily bathing. I mean, you might want to sort of do the old face washer under the arms or whatever have you. But as for washing every square millimetre of your body, yeah, it's it's really not necessary. And certainly for people with problem skin like people with eczema, it's probably a bad idea because they're just stripping the natural oils off their skin every day. And they already have impaired barrier function to start with, so they're better off just getting a little bit dirty. <laughs> For me, it's hard because I go for ex- I exercise in the morning, so I shower after I exercise because I'm sweaty and disgusting. But I also shower just to wake up and face the day. Yeah. I, I must admit, I it's just, and I do I, the cold shower in the yeah. 
Have a cold I'm shower. I'm in such a habit. Yeah, I'm in such a habit of daily showering that psychologically I find it difficult to not do it. And yet, logically, it's sort of hard to justify the practice. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I don't scrub everything. I give myself a bit of an art, you know, just the parts that are I want scrubbed. <laughs> yes, I'm with you. <laughs> I basically say the parts with hair <laughs> like under the arms. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's funny when my son's, you know, kids say the darndest things about the parts with hair on, on women and men that they don't have. And just today yes, they were yet. talking about it and I was just like, oh, my gosh, I hope you don't talk about this at school. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they yeah, do. they do. Just hopefully not in front of the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Who's probably heard it all anyway, so it wouldn't be fast. <laughs> yeah, and so you were talking now. I'm just say, asking this because my dad, the last few times I've seen him, he keeps bringing up this latest flu strain is very, very, very severe and he's – obviously worried about the kids and he sees my kids getting wet and muddy and out in the cold and whatever. Um, they're just being boys, but they're not out in the cold all the time. They're, I would prefer them to come in, but they go out. They go out and they get saturated yes. and yeah. and he worries. And so for because we, I feel for me personally, I now they are fussy and so it's not like at my house they just eat a beautiful always whole food plant-based perfect diet some days they eat less greens than other days other days they eat a lot more greens and some days they have some more they have some more junk food and more refined sure. foods but typically i feel like i do my best to make sure they have a diverse range of fruits nuts grains vegetables legumes and I really trust that they – like I breastfed them for eternity and they had vaginal births and I really try to let their bodies do the thing that their bodies are supposed to do. They haven't – I don't think either of them have had antibiotics. So I'm not worried, but my dad is worried and I think people who are listening may also hear those stories about the flu and how deadly it is at the moment and, or any time really. It's always in the media that the latest one's the worst one. Yes. It's like – I don't know whether the media have short memories or whether they think that we do because every year it seems to be the worst ever reported. So, okay, Um the flu is basically a pain in the neck to get, right? Uh, you, you feel pretty crook. If you're generally a healthy person, you're going to feel awfully crook for several days. And for a week, maybe even two weeks, you're going to feel moderately crook. And you might still cough up a bit of disgustingness for, for a while, but basically you're going to recover. So young people, and that includes kids, unless they're on chemotherapy or immunosuppressive drugs or whatever, um, they, they, they get the flu, they feel crook, and then they get better. So it's a pest. They have to stay home from school, whatever. Um we actually don't have any evidence that, that vaccination against the flu reduces school absenteeism. And the Cochrane uh, collaboration did a, a uh, um, well, they did a Cochrane review on the administration of flu vaccines to children, to healthy adults, and to uh, healthcare workers who were looking after elderly people, say, in, in residential homes. And in none of those cases did flu vaccines actually present any advantage. So they're uh, can we protect kids against the flu? Well, generally in the sense that if they are 
healthy, well-nourished, they're getting enough sleep, their chances of getting it are diminished. And if they do get it, it's it's not going to be severe. The people who are most who are most at risk of of um, really serious complications from the flu are elderly people. And they, I mean, look, they're at more risk of serious complications of anything, really. They're at more risk of dying if they get gastro from undercooked chicken at the, you know, at the kebab shop or whatever. So, and that's, and that's very sad. It's just that using that as a fear stick to beat everyone else with just doesn't make any sense. You know, elderly people uh, don't actually have a good immunological response to flu, to flu vaccines. So you can vaccinate the, the living daylights out of elderly people and, and you make basically bugger all of difference in their risk of, of getting the flu. And vaccinating people who are around them doesn't prevent transmission of the flu to elderly people. So what do we need to do? We just look after our health generally and kids, as I say, I mean, kids are not going to get seriously ill from the flu unless they have some underlying condition that affects their ability to mount an effective immune response, such as being on chemotherapy. Mm. Thank you. Uh, That's really helpful to me and I hope it's really helpful to people that are listening. Now, we wanted to talk about gut health in relation to mental health and I don't want to... I'm having a great time, and I I always, I always <laughs> have such a great time. But let's let's talk about well, okay, uh, let's talk about mental health and and the role that gut health plays. So, where would you like to start? I would like to start because I th- I know a lot of people, and myself included, I experience anxiety, and I have for a long time. Now it is better today. And it's hard because people who don't know me, didn't know me in my 20s might say, gee, you're still quite anxious. And I think, oh, my gosh, in my 20s, I had a do- I've been journaling for since I was 13 years old. My grandma first got me a diary. I started journaling. And it was a bleak, horrible misery until I was about 30 where I just wrote every day that I was just just getting through the drudgery of life. And it wasn't until I changed my diet that now most of the day, there are definitely ebbs and flows in my day, but it is now a it's mostly fine, but there's bits where I dip down into anxiety. Whereas before it was, it was months of anxiety and bits where I dip down into joy. <laughs> half an hour of happiness and then another six months of feeling like absolute crud. Yes. Yeah, okay. so I've noticed well, a stark difference. And I think that a lot of people that I know are living with anxiety or depression or on a more extreme end of the spectrum conditions such as bipolar. And people I love and care about and people that you you know within the community are living with these conditions – and f- just from my own research and having done now 101 episodes of this show, most guests will say my, their mental health or their anxiety improved along with their adopting a whole food plant-based diet. But I'd just like to hear more from you and more from the, the experts in nutrition that come on this show. So, and this is really a fascinating topic uh, because they, they – 
study of the role that diet plays in how people are feeling emotionally or psychologically is relatively new. But it has certainly exploded in the last probably five to 10 years. The best evidence that that we have is actually for intake of fruit and veg. So there was a a series of papers that was written by uh, David Blanche Flower and Sarah. I can't remember her last name, but I will I will find this for you. And so basically the a person's mood state rises in direct proportion to the number of portions of fruit and veg that they eat per day. And this is a really consistent finding across different cultures. So there are what we call cross-sectional studies, which is where you just recruit a bunch of people and you give them a questionnaire about their mental health, their anxiety, their mood state and so forth, and you do a diet diary, right? So what we see from the cross-sectional studies is that the happy, chirpy people are eating more fruit and veg. Now, you could so you could speculate that that was reverse causation. In other words, when people are feeling better, they make better dietary choices. So to, to investigate that one, you need what's called a, pro, a prospective cohort study. So you recruit a bunch of people and they don't have any mental health issues at baseline. And then you follow them up over two years, five years, 10 years. You know, some of these really large cohort studies like the Nurses Health Study have, have been running since the 70s. And the, the oldest and best known one is probably the Framingham study, which began in, if my memory serves me correctly, the 1950s. So when you when you use data, when you look at data from these um, prospective cohorts, studies, what you see is that people's dietary habits now predict their mental health outcomes later down the track. So there are two main cohort studies that we can look at. Um, the, the nurses' health study has had a mental health component. And also, so that's an American study in which they recruited female nurses and then followed them up. Uh, this one began in the late 70s. And then there's the Whitehall 2 study. So this involved public servants or what's called the civil service in the UK. And with both of these cohort studies, they found basically the same thing that they, so they, rather than kind of picking out individual foods, what they do with the Whitehall study is to characterize overall dietary patterns. So people who were eating a dietary pattern that was, you know, refined sugar, processed meats or meats generally like high in animal products. And then there were people who were eating more of a whole food pattern. So no surprises here to you and me, those who were eating this this sort of refined food, animal product heavy diet, even if they were mentally pretty healthy at baseline, they were far more likely to get a diagnosis of depression uh, at the follow-up period, which was, let me see, I'm just actually, so the Whitehall 2, um, yeah, so they, they were uh, followed up over five years. And so women who were eating the healthiest dietary pattern or those who actually improved their diet over the uh, over the 10 year measurement period, actually, they uh, so so if you had a high um, score on what they call the alternative healthy eating index, which is a high intake of fruit, veg, fiber, nuts and soy products, then you had a 65 percent lower risk of becoming depressed and if you improved your diet over the 10-year follow-up, you had a 68% lower risk of becoming depressed. So that, they're pretty impressive numbers. They are. 
And some of the things that, that they picked out in particular were uh, around fats. And then there were other other researchers based in the US who've investigated the, the role of, of particular types of fat. And what they found is that um, when you eat animal products, animal products are really high in omega-6 fat called, fat called arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid is converted in the body to uh, some pro-inflammatory uh, chemicals called prostaglandins. And on the other hand, omega-3 fats, which you get from, you know, flax and chia and uh, walnuts and hemp and green leafy veggies and also from fish uh but the uh, if you had a higher intake of omega-3 fats then you had a lower risk of, of of depression but what was interesting is that uh, in, in one particular study, they they randomised people to either a diet that contained fish, so it was high in omega threes, or a, a a plant. Sorry, it was a vegetarian diet. It did have dairy products, but no eggs, and the mood states were better on the vegetarian diet, even though the omega three intake was higher in the fish diet. And they speculated that the fish, sure, it had more omega-3, but it also had more arachidonic acid. And so the ratio between the omega-3, which generally is thought of as having an antidepressant effect, and the omega-6, which is pro-inflammatory and, and feeds into depression, it was the ratio between those that was more important than the yeah, total amount. So there was more omega-6 than omega-3. There was more omega-6 because animals make omega-6, including us. So we don't actually need to eat arachidonic acid. It's not an essential fatty acid. We, we make it ourselves. But when we eat animals, they've made it themselves. And so we're eating it preformed. Wow. See, I did not know that at all. And I don't think many people would know that we make omega-6 ourselves. Yeah, well, we need to have uh, the, the essential omega-6 fat, linoleic acid. So I'm sorry, linoleic acid. Uh, so we need to consume that. But out of that, we make the arachidonic acid, okay? But if there is too much... No, Where can the, we get linoleic acid? Oh, it's ubiquitous. It, it, the, the question is where where don't we get it? So no one suffering a diet a dietary deficiency of this particular omega six. Um, I'm sorry, no, the omega six is linoleic acid. I'm sorry, the omega three that we need to eat is alpha linoleic acid. Okay, so the two fats that humans need to eat are the omega three fat, alpha linoleic acid from which we make long-chain omega-3s, DPA, DHA, and EPA. And we the other one that we need to eat is the linoleic acid, the omega-6 fat linoleic acid, out of which we make our GLA, arachidonic acid, and a bunch of other omega-6s. Right, so we, we there's only two essential fats that humans need to make, need to eat, and then all the other types of fatty acids, we just make them. Out of out of either those those precursors or out of out of things that aren't even fat to start with. Mm. Um, that's an off off topic thing. So um, I go, we're going back to mental health and food, but I just wanted to go off topic because you were talking about these things that we don't get and we do get. And I know that for many people who are proponents of clean meats, organ meats, eating meat, Atkins diet, ketogenic diet, you know, whatever, paleo, probably paleo even more so. 
they talk about when they are, you know, if they're, if they're in an argument with a vegan, they'll say, you know, I, people say we only need B12 supplemented, but they'll say, what about vitamin K2? Oh, well, that's made by our gut bacteria. So we eat, we eat vitamin K1. That's abundant in particularly green leafy vegetables. Uh, some gut bacteria will make K1 as well, but our gut bacteria convert K1 to K2. So we don't need to eat it preformed. Now, if you look at the food sources of vitamin K2, things like natto, the fermented um, soybean, well, the fermentation process is carried out by bacteria. So you can have them make it outside your body or you can have them make it inside your body. At the end of the day, the substance is exactly the same. K2 is K2. Why Doesn't did I eat all you... of that natto that time? <laughs> I, I don't know. I've, I've never had the pleasure. I've 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 se- I've read descriptions of it. I, it. I ate it at a sushi restaurant because I was Iggy was a baby and I was really panicked about it and I ate it and I thought that is the most disgusting thing I've ever eaten. I'm sorry to any look. People think Vegemite's disgusting and even though I do think it's <laughs> disgusting logically, I grew Me up too. with it, so I still think it's <gasps> delicious, even though I don't eat it anymore. But I still can enjoy it. So it's if I was Japanese, perhaps I would think NATO was delicious. It's just mm. that I'm absolutely a in the white same woman way from that, a carrot farm in Thorpedale, and to me, it's yeah. Revolting. You know, if if you were an Inuit, mm. if you grew up among the Inuit, you would think that that um, you know, raw caribou intestines were just the best thing ever, uh, and and seal blubber, you know, smeared over your walrus steaks. You you think that was just the bomb. So yeah, human taste preferences are remarkably adaptive. Are they? <laughs> I know, girlfriend of mine her husband is Thai and they have for breakfast they have organ meats like intestines and rice porridge that's their porridge they start the day with rice and organ meats in a bowl and she's beautiful and so she when she goes to stay with her mother-in-law she just scoots the organs to the side and just eats the rice eats the rice yes but I I could not do that I think that she's so remarkable that she can just flick the organs to the side and eat around it whereas I as soon as I see organs in a bowl if that's on my plate I I just lost my appetite everything's contaminated in my mind <laughs> totally. <laughs> so thank you so much. So K2 is made in the gut and we convert K1 into K2 ourselves. Is that what I'm getting? Yeah. Now again, um if you've taken a lot of antibiotics, you you may be quite depleted in the bacteria that that make this and there are actually probiotic supplements. It's bacilli, soil bacilli that that are probably the best at making K2 and so you can actually take them as supplements if you have been on antibiotics um, and you know I, I get a lot of my clients to do a stool analysis or basically a, like a, it's a fecal DNA analysis through your biome and they assess for the, the number of K of vitamin K2 producing bacteria in, in, in the you know in the sample that you provide and so if I find someone who has low numbers of those bacteria that can produce K2, then, you know, we can seriously think about supplementing with them. And can you get vegan supplements of K2? Vegan supplements of K2? Well, I mean, it's made by bacteria. So, yes, in theory, they they all should be. Yeah. Cool, cool. 
Okay, so thank you for that. Now back to talking about mental health because I don't want to take back up to mental all health. Time. Oh, oh, I wanted to I wanted to mention just briefly too. There was there's some really interesting research that's come out of New Zealand on the again just back back to the fruit and veg topic where they they looked at young people uh, under the age of twenty five and they had them keep uh, internet diet diaries and also describe their their mood state anxiety symptoms and so forth. And once again, they they found this this prospective relationship between fruit and veg consumption and positive mood states, including um, this. Um, I'll get. I'm, I'm going to give you the exact wording of it. Uh, eudaimonia. <laughs> eudaimonia is this Greek word that means a contented state of being happy, healthy, and prosperous. And so. How's it spelled? Yeah, it's E-U-D-A-E-M-O-N-I-A. So here's a quote from the study. Young adults who ate more fruit and veg reported higher average eudaimonic well-being, more intense feelings of curiosity, and greater creativity compared with young adults who ate less fruit and veg. On days when they ate more fruit and veg, they reported greater eudaimonic well-being, curiosity, and creativity. But it also predicted higher positive affect. So, in other words, eat more fruit and veg today, feel better, you know, have higher mood states tomorrow. So, in other words, again, it's not reverse causation. It's not that on days when we're feeling better, we eat less crap. It's when when we eat better, we feel better not just today but also tomorrow. That is excellent news for my children. Kids, if you listen to this when you're 18, you're not going to want to listen to it now. Just thank thank me then when you're smarter and experiencing more eudaimonia. <laughs> All right? Absolutely. Even if you don't quite know what eudaimonia is, <laughs> your mum will point it out to you. <laughs> you're, ha- you're having a day of eudaimonic well-being. Good for you. <laughs> And I will be teaching everyone that at the dinner table tonight. Fantastic. Word, word for the day, eudaimonia. Um, there's, so the researchers always, like when they get these findings, they, they always like to speculate on, on what actually caused it. And so the theories around higher fruit and veg and, and, and better mood mostly revolve around water-soluble nutrients, so things like potassium and folate and magnesium and the role that, that they may play in, for example, um, neurotransmitter formation, uh, neurotransmitter metabolism more generally, I suppose. Um, but also the the fact that fruit and veg is really high in antioxidants. So there's a very, very strong relationship between inflammation and depression. So any condition that causes acute inflammation actually brings on depression. For, for instance, if you, if you put people on interferon, to treat, say, uh, a viral illness, about 50% of them develop a major depressive episode because the interferon treatment creates this basically this big inflammatory storm. Um, and, and so, yeah, people become depressed when they're acutely inflamed. But what we, what we know from studies of people with, with uh, major depressive disorders, so people who are chronically depressed, is that they have this low-grade inflammation, like this smoldering inflammation, which is the same smoldering inflammation that you see in obesity, in cardiovascular disease, in type 2 diabetes, 
In other words, what we think of as being, you know, quote unquote, mental illness is very likely just a manifestation of a sick human. And this is a sick body. So the sickness will show up in different organ systems depending on what the function of that organ system is. So if your arteries are inflamed, they develop plaque. If your joints are inflamed, you get pain. And if your brain is inflamed, you get depressed. Mm. Right? So, so it's no great surprise then that, you know, as you say, and I've heard, I mean, I think I've listened to every episode that you've, you've done on the podcast. And when people start to feel physically better, they also feel psychologically better. Now, um, you could argue that, that hey, if you've just lost 30 kilos and your joints don't hurt when you move and you uh, aren't afraid that you're going to die of a heart attack tomorrow, then you might feel better. I mean, sure, that makes sense. That's pretty logical, isn't it? Like when you were di- diagnosed with MS, um, I think only a crazy person wouldn't have become depressed. Seriously. Like yeah. you're told as a young woman – you have a progressive illness, which is going to have you in a wheelchair probably within 10 years, and you're going to have a miserable life and eventually go blind, lose control of your bladder, um, you know, be unable to move yourself around. Who wouldn't become depressed? Like what the heck would be wrong with you if you didn't become depressed in that scenario? There, There is a very interesting theory about depression from um, evolutionary psychology that depression is basically an adaptive response to life challenge. So when people become depressed, they begin to ruminate. It's a, it's a characteristic feature of depression that people focus intently on their problem. They often develop a diminished appetite. They become disinterested in sex or any pleasurable activity. And they just obsess about the problem. And Interestingly, that whole response to depression is actually physiologically coordinated. So the theory is then that when a person faces a major life challenge, they become depressed in order to focus their their cognitive resources on solving the problem. They don't want to be distracted by hot members of the opposite sex or tasty food or whatever. They're focused on solving the problem. And so when we want to help people who are depressed, we should help them identify the problem and help them solve it. And it's fascinating that you mentioned journaling. Journaling has been found to be an incredibly effective way of of helping people uh, come out of depression because it helps them get insight into their problems. So rather than saying that people are mentally ill because they're depressed, it's it may be more accurate to say that they're they're experiencing an adaptive response to a life situation. So you got MS, you were diagnosed with MS, you became depressed, again, understandably. And thinking about the trajectory that your life was on prompted you to look for other answers than the ones that you've been given. And that's what led you to discovering a whole food plant-based diet. So your depression led directly to you finding the solution to it. Now, did the experience of depression suck? Undoubtedly. It, it definitely does. doesn't feel good. It does. Mm. And this this is this is what makes people so um I don't know, like a, when you see a depressed person, you, you just you just want to give them relief. Uh, but if you relieve the depression without actually helping the person solve the problem, 
you're, you're perpetuating their depression. This is interesting point to me, and I know I've said that a million times this episode because it's all interesting to me, but when you say that, because a lot of people that I know, and when I'm – because I have been been depressed, um, so when I meet someone who is having a hard time and feeling depressed, obviously I don't want to – I, I don't want to take them out of it, even though it's heavy being around someone who is mm. depressed, especially if it's a loved mm. one and they're going through a period mm. where they just don't feel right and they are having that major life change and it's heavy and they're yes. right in it and you want to fix it, but you know you you also know that they you need to just witness it and be there with for them and yes. and yes. listen and support them. Which sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you briefly, but that's actually the other evolutionary psychology theory for for the evolutionary basis of, of depression, which is that it's a way of signalling for help. Mm. Okay, mm. so the depressed person looks dejected; they're downcast. They are very obviously signalling to those around them. I'm facing a life problem which is beyond my resources. Please help me. It's uh, it's called costly signalling. So, in in costly signalling, the the organism, um, and and this happens in animal species too. Uh, so so we'll, we'll you know we'll stick with the human. Um, the human behaves in this fashion where those around them become concerned for their well being, even become concerned that they that they might commit suicide. And as a consequence, because they're, again, I mean, evolutionary psychologists, they're, they're not exactly sort of fun and cuddly people. They see everything in terms of what, is, what strategies genes have evolved to promote their own survival, okay? So your family members are genetically invested in your survival because you actually carry some of their genetic material around in your body, so if you signal to them that you are depressed and possibly contemplating suicide, they are extremely motivated to jump in and help you, okay? Wow, yes. Mm. And what's super interesting, and this is not in any way to diminish the suffering that's involved in, in depression, and particularly for those who, who have attempted suicide, the, in the vast majority of documented cases where a person has attempted suicide and been unsuccessful. That's a terrible way to put it. Someone who has made a suicide attempt and survived and, and you know, thank God they have, that that's wonderful. In the vast majority of documented cases where, where psychologists have examined this, it was basic like it supports the costly signaling hypothesis. This person was in a situation of powerlessness or uh, a problem that that they needed help solving and their depression or their suicide attempt actually secured for them the help that they needed to solve it. Wow. Yeah. So, again, when you encounter someone who is depressed, yes, support them, um, encourage them, offer your help, help them understand what their problem is. And that's tricky when people, when they don't know and you don't know. Yeah, in, in which case journaling, because once people start to journal, it becomes much, much, much clearer what, what the real, what the core of the problem is. Mm. Yeah. Especially for yeah. me, because you once you start journaling daily, because I've gone through ebbs and flows where I haven't touched it for a year or multiple years, and then I've come back to it. Yeah, but, yeah. Because, you know, I've, 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 it's been consistent, but also, in, you know, there's been bits where I've had kids yes. and all of those things. Yes. But 
you start to notice themes in mm. your journaling because sometimes mm. you just think I'm just feeling, but you just. It's easy to just ignore when you're not writing it down. But when you're writing it down, you're like, oh, my gosh, I've written this same problem. Yes. yes. Which is the rumination. For months and months and months. This is ridiculous. What can I do? Who can I seek? How how can I get the answer to solve this problem? But when you don't write it down, it just gets lost in the ether. Absolutely. And the the, uh, the founder of cognitive therapy, uh, Aaron Beck, who is an American psychiatrist, he described these as automatic thoughts. So people, your, your, your brain has thoughts. It just does. That's what it's there for, right? Your bladder makes urine. Oh, sorry, your kidneys make urine. Your bladder stores it. Uh, your heart beats and, and your, your mind has thoughts. There's no way around this. But when people are not aware of their thoughts they're experiencing what are called automatic thoughts and many of these thoughts are uh, you know contribute to to depression so if you can get people to write down those thoughts and then sit back and actually have a look at them it helps them identify what the problem is and then they can adopt more useful strategies to solve the problem now again you know um if you look at evolutionary psychology research on on depression it turns out that in laboratory experiments um depressed people are actually better at solving social dilemmas than non-depressed people. They, they are actually more accurate in assessing costs and benefits. And so they tend to make better decisions. And part of that is that when you're depressed, there's um, decreased, uh, but basically there's increased activity of, of a part of the brain that minimizes distraction. So our brains are, are inherently distractible, but there is, uh, so, so with depressed people, that distractibility is minimized. So it means that they, they you know, are, are really focused on their problem, which can be pretty draining when you're, when you're around that depressed person, because all they ever do is talk about this problem. They're trying to solve it. It's an adaptive response. So what happens when you put a person on medication is that their feelings are blunted. So so you take the situation of, say, a woman who has just found out that her husband is cheating on her and she's got three kids and she's a stay-at-home mom and doesn't have an independent income. So she's likely to become quite depressed and she now needs to run through the cost-benefit analysis. Should she just put up with it and and stay with him, you know, because economically she's going to be disadvantaged and so will her kids? Should she confront him? He might leave her, right? Um, so in that situation, she she's likely to become depressed because she's going to be intently focused on solving this problem. Now, if you give her an antidepressant, she stops trying to solve the problem because she basically doesn't give a rat's behind about it. You know, antidepressants don't have a specific activity on, on depression, right? They just make people care less. <laughs> and so if you're in an intolerable situation like that, it, it pays to care. You ought to care. <laughs> It's interesting because I've talked about this before on the show that I was on antidepressants around when my brother was dying and after he died. And in that instance, I was so grateful to care less for a bit because it was so hard. Excruciating. This, this is the terrible dilemma. It's the terrible dilemma because psychological I couldn't suffering. do my schooling. I was studying. I couldn't without the antidepressants to take that, to dull those feelings because those feelings were just overwhelming. overwhelming. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I found them an absolute 
bless a magical. And I, I am not here to tell people no. to do or not no, do anything. No, and I know right? that you're not. But the research is a hundred percent clear. People who take antidepressants are more likely to relapse than people who don't. So we have this awful dilemma. When people are in great psychological pain, uh, they will eventually come out of it. And if you look at the natural history of depression, that is what happens to a person who experiences depression and doesn't receive pharmacological treatment for it. The vast majority of cases spontaneously remit in six months to a year and they never occur. And that was the course of depression right through the 1950s until the development of antidepressant drugs. In fact, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually running a webinar on depression next month, uh, next week, I'm Everyone? sorry, for my, for my group. Oh, so I'm Join gonna, her I'm group and quotes. check in. Um, so Natural History of, of Depression, the National Institute of Mental Health, which is sort of the, the primary research organisation in the US that funds um, investigation into you know, conditions like depression. So in the 1960s and 70s, uh, this is what they wrote. Depression is on the whole one of the psychiatric conditions with the best prognosis for eventual recovery with or without treatment. Most depressions are self-limited. 1964, this was Jonathan Cole uh, in the treatment of depression, oh, sorry, um, Nathan Klein, in the treatment of depression, one always one always has as an ally the fact that most depressions terminate in spontaneous remissions. This means that in many cases, regardless of what one does, the patient eventually will begin to get better. And 1974, Dean Shuler, head of the depression section at NIMH, spontaneous recovery rates, rates were so high, exceeding 50% within a few months, that it was difficult to judge the efficacy of a drug or a treatment like electroshock or psychotherapy in depressed patients because they were going to get better anyway. So this <laughs> is like, how do you measure the success of a treatment when everyone's just going to get better? And then what happens in the 1950s is you get the development of MAOIs and then tricyclics. And over the course of the next 30 to 40 years, depression goes from being this, in most cases, one-off event where a person just had a really shitty thing happen in their life and they felt really crap about it for a good long while and they felt better and that was it. They never got depressed again. So it turned from that into what's now characterized as a chronic relapsing condition. So what changed? What changed was the way that treatment was approached. <laughs> specifically that the people started being prescribed antidepressant drugs. So um, Robert Whitaker, who's a, a journalist, this is a fantastic book. I'm sorry, this is a podcast. I'm showing Corinne a book. You can't see this because you're listening to audio, but it's called Anatomy of an Epidemic by I'm Robert Whitaker. I'm writing it down. And it is such a fine piece of investigative journalism and science writing. It totally changed the way that I see mental uh, mental health issues. His work, along with uh, David Healy, who's um, an Irish psychiatrist, he's got a great blog, and Peter Bregan, um, an American psychiatrist. So look up all of these people. David Healy, Peter Bregan. Yep. So Healy, uh, H-E-A-L-Y. Peter Bregan is B-R-E-G-G-I-N. And then Robert Whitaker, and Whitaker is spelt with one T. His website, madinamerica.com, is absolutely phenomenal. The quality of articles on there will just blow your mind. Oh, and then the other name that I, I'd suggest you check out would be Peter Gertzer, G-O-E-T-Z. 
S-C-H-E, Peter Gercher, who wrote a book called uh, Deadly Psychiatry and Organised Denial. And I'll, I'll throw one. I'll throw an extra one on there too, which is Irving Kirsch's book, The Emperor's New Drugs. And in that, he basically tears apart the entire basis for the prescription of SSRIs. There is no such thing as a biochemical imbalance that causes depression. No such thing. In 1994, the textbook, uh, the official textbook of the American um, Psychiatric Association formally acknowledged that there is no biochemical imbalance. There is no serotonin deficiency. Doesn't exist. Wow. People don't know this and it is extraordinary, but it is so well documented. The um, serotonin deficiency hypothesis was first proposed in the 1960s, I believe. It never panned out. There is no serotonin deficiency in depression. In fact, in, in France, there's a drug called tyoneptine, which is prescribed for depression. It lowers serotonin levels. Okay, so, you know, SSRIs supposedly work by raising serotonin levels. Well, tyoneptine lowers it. You know what the response rate to tyoneptine is? It's exactly the same as it is to SSRIs. They're placebos. These drugs are placebos. Irving Kirsch's work in, in um, The Emperor's New Drugs makes that 100% clear. These drugs work by placebo effect. And depression is extraordinarily responsive to, to placebo, except really, really severe depression. It's not, it's not that responsive to placebo. And in the cases of conditions like bipolar, for instance, how does that, how do, like lithium, for instance, is one of the drugs that I know that is used in bipolar. Yeah. Like how, yeah. yeah, how does that work with, with all this research that you're talking about here? So uh, bipolar, again, there's a whole chapter on bipolar in anatomy of an epidemic and the incidence of bipolar has skyrocketed and there's a very, very strong uh, case that bipolar is actually induced by treatment with SSRIs. So if you look at rates of bipolar before the SSRI um, era, bipolar was as rare as hen's teeth. And it also was described as having generally a favourable outcome with high rates of spontaneous remission. Uh, and now, of course, it's seen as, as, a, as, as a chronic illness that requires lifelong medication. Your basic problem with all of these diagnoses is that they have no rational basis, okay? So if you uh, – in, in – um, th there, are, there are two terms that are used in scientific research, uh, including medical research. That's reliability and validity, Okay, so reliability means it's basically the consistency of a measure. So uh, would 10 observers or 10 trained professionals uh, assess uh, or, or put the same diagnostic label on, on a patient? The reliability of psychiatric diagnoses is abysmal. The, the whole purpose of writing the, the diagnostic and statistical manual that the DSM was to improve reliability well, they're up to DSM-5 and a study published in 2015 that, that looked at 12 major diagnoses in the DSM-5 and that included major depressive disorder and bipolar uh, and, and dysthymic disorder as well as some anxiety conditions. They found that the reliability would be considered fair. 
<laughs> by by uh, traditional standards. Only a single diagnosis demonstrated good reliability. The rest were fair. Uh, 25% of diagnoses would have been considered poor by traditional standards. So this is why people will, will get 10 different diagnoses from, from 10 different um, treating professionals. Because you're not looking at objective measures. Like, how do we diagnose a person with type 2 diabetes? How, how do we, you know, what are the criteria that we use? I measure their blood glucose level and their HbA1c. And maybe we do a um, glucose tolerance test. There are objective criteria. How do you diagnose a person with depression? Well, every time, every time I've been diagnosed with it, you just walk in and say, I'm depressed. And yeah. they say, okay. So do you walk into a doctor's office and say, I'm a diabetic? And they go, fair enough, I'll prescribe you a drug? Of course not. <laughs> the, the, other, the other measure is, is, is validity. So, so the, the reliability of psychiatric diagnoses is abysmally low. The validity refers to whether the study or the, or the, or the, the um, measuring test that you're using is actually measuring what it claims to measure. Okay, so the validity of the DSM is so poor that in 2013, just before the DSM-5 was published, the National Institutes of Mental Health, their director, Thomas Insull, uh, said that they would no longer be using the DSM to guide the research being done on psychiatric conditions at, at the National Institute of Mental Health because of the lack of validity of these diagnostic categories. So most, you can still, this was in a press release, you can still find it on the National Institute of Mental Health's website. It's the most extraordinary thing. The director of the institute that funds more research on mental health in the world basically says, uh, we're not really paying any attention to the DSM-5 because it's a crock. <laughs> it just, now, of all the people that I've seen over the years who've been prescribed an SSRI, every single one of them has been told the biochemical imbalance story, every single one. And they are amazed when I tell them it's BS. There is no truth to this whatsoever. And so how do you, where can people, where, like, that's a big statement. And I think most people have heard that. I know. I don't make it lightly. So what is the evidence that it doesn't exist? Uh, that is detailed very, very well in Robert Whitaker's book, also Gary Greenberg's book, um, Manufacturing Depression. So, okay, to prove that there was a biochemical imbalance that caused uh, the, the depression in the first place, um, you can either chop out, chop open a person's brain or you can measure levels of serotonin metabolites in cerebrospinal fluid, which drains directly off the brain. So that's, that's really the primary um, uh, method of study, which has established that there is no, no serotonin deficiency. That is, or there's no serotonin imbalance until a person actually starts on, on medication. And then there is. So the fact that, um, that SSRIs do apparently or do do raise serotonin levels in the synapses of the brain. Uh, that that does not cause remission of depression any more than than if I take an aspirin, it relieves a headache. Right? Did I suffer from an aspirin deficiency? Is, is that what caused my headache? Of course not. <laughs> so the, the the fact that aspirin works to relieve headaches doesn't mean that headaches are caused by an aspirin deficiency. The fact that SSRIs raise serotonin levels in synapses does not mean that depression was caused by relative deficiency of serotonin in the brain. You following me? Yes. So the whole theory of biochemical imbalance 
it never had a solid basis whatsoever. In fact, the man who was primarily the scientist who was responsible to develop for um, the one who proposed the theory in the first place backed away from it. His own research failed to validate it. You know, David Healy, who I mentioned before, basically spent 15 years examining the basis for the biochemical imbalance theory of depression and found nada, diddly squat, absolutely nothing. There's a, there's a great quote for him. I love this. Um, hang on, let me find this for you. He, dis- he compares the serotonin deficiency uh, theory of, of depression with the masturbatory theory of, of, of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> He's a pretty funny guy. Those Irish people, they uh, crack they, me they up. They are very um, in generalising, but yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not all funny, clearly. But uh, anyway, so so no, there there is no basis to this. And and if you ask your prescribing doctor, who's told you that there is to to provide you with evidence for it, they simply won't be able to do it. No one's been able to do this. It's not for want of trying. The drug companies want to prove that this is true, provide a rational basis for prescribing SSRIs, but they haven't been able to do it. And like I said, tyoneptine lowers serotonin levels and has exactly the same response rate as drugs that raise it. So that isn't that isn't why it's working to the sense that it works. And I think we need to use the word works in inverted commas. Anyway, sorry, we were talking about diet and depression. This has taken a whole... I know. <laughs> and I, I could talk about this all now. I, I say this every single episode, but I could. And, oh, my gosh, we have to have another... I have to have you back, episode 202. So it's just this... <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> oh, sorry. I wanted to read you one more thing. This was Robert Spitzer. Um, he headed up the team which created DSM-3 and the job of D- – like they were really trying to improve reliability of DSM-3. Um, so this is a direct quote. He says, there's only a handful of mental disorders in the DSM known to have a clear biological cause, and these are known as the organic disorders. This is things like ep- epilepsy and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. For all other mental disorders in the DSM, no biological markers have been identified. Like, that's an extraordinary statement. This is the guy who who headed up the team that wrote the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the Bible of Psychiatric Diagnosis. He's saying no biological markers have been identified. So, okay, what do we do with all of this? Why, why do people feel better when they eat a plant-based diet? Um Higher antioxidant levels, higher water-soluble nutrients, better ratio of fats, you lose weight, you have more energy, you feel spontaneously more inclined to exercise. We know that exercise is an amazingly powerful antidepressant. If you do it outdoors in nature, we know that exposure to nature is a really powerful antidepressant. Um, We also, like one of the other cognitive theories of depression is learned helplessness, So learned helplessness is when people conclude that nothing that they do makes a blind bit of difference, so they might as well just give up. And when you start changing your diet and you feel better, that deals with the learned helplessness problem because you now realize that what you do does make a difference. So whichever way you slice and dice it, you go on a whole food plant-based diet and you're going to be way less depressed. <laughs> so whatever whatever the explanation for that is, I mean, there are multiple explanations and all of them – Kind of like I see them as being like spokes on the on, on the wheel. They all contribute to the better mood states that, that people report. It doesn't mean that you'll never feel crappy. We all feel crappy from time to time. Life as a human is very, very hard. You know, we were we were chatting before you hit record about the various travails that we both experienced this week. We both had a week where, you know, shit happened. The wheels have fallen off. <laughs> 
Um, but I, I, my favourite definition of mental health comes from the Scottish mystic um, Sydney Banks, who founded a, I don't know, I suppose it's a, um, a, he found it. What, what, he, he developed what he called the three principles. So he, this is his definition of mental health. A person is mentally healthy when they are fully aware that they're living life from the inside out, that their experience of life is mediated by their thinking processes. So in the midst of my particularly crappy week when I felt just really down in the dumps, I was still mentally healthy because I completely realized that that my whole experience um, was mediated by my thinking about the problems that 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 I, I was facing at that point in time. Now, the converse of this is that you, if you're happy as a clam, but you attribute the source of your happiness to something outside of you, you are not mentally healthy. So if you're happy and you think it's because I met the man of my dreams or I just got a promotion or I just won the lottery, you're actually not mentally healthy. So that's pretty mind-bending when you really ponder that. It is. And when you realize, you know, when I was when you when I was in my teens and twenties, and everything I everything I bought in my early thirties, it's only been in the last probably my thirties that I have really noticed that it used to be that you would sh- you'd buy something and you'd get this feeling, or you'd be like, my I'll be so happy when I get this new <laughs> pair of shoes. I'll be so yeah. happy when I get this this <laughs> when ex- I go on that holiday. Yeah, I'll be so happy <laughs> then, and then realizing that all this shit in my house that I've accumulated. <laughs> Hasn't done a lick of difference to my happiness. Guess what? It didn't make you happy. It didn't. And <laughs> no then, figure. and then I, th- I think that's why Marie Kondo has had such a big effect on yeah. all of us because she's been yeah. saying the thing that we're like, ah, oh, these things don't make us happy. This shit that we have in our house that we've accumulated, this next pair of shoes, this next pair of pants, this next thing from Amazon. Not only are the staff of Amazon being horrifically exploited. <laughs> totally. But we're yeah. not happy still, so why would we keep – it's just this yeah. Yeah. perpetual yeah. cycle of unhappiness while we look outwards for our, jo- our source of joy instead of looking within. That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> looking within to our microorganisms and feeding them the foods that they like to eat, a whole food oh, plant-based yes. diet. We'll talk about that a bit more. Hey, we'll have to – Rinjit is going to be rolling his eyes at this one. So oh, so we'll have, to, we'll have to do that in the next episode. In the, the next specific one. Specific effect of, uh, of the gut microbiota on mental health. But, but you know, spoiler alert, uh, what, what you eat feeds them. Yes. And so if you're feeding them crappy food, you end up in a crappy mood. That's – that's the bottom line. <laughs> I'm ending it on that because it's such a simple, <laughs> it's <do>. simple <laughs> and perfect. Crappy food equals crappy mood. And we all know someone in our lives who is miserable constantly and feeding themselves crappy foods that they think are comfort foods to help them yes. feel better. A quick fix. It's such a trap. And they're trapped it's in the cycle of comforting themselves with foods yep. that make things just so much worse inside and out. Yes, 100%. Robin, yeah. you've already given me your three top tips before, but do you have three for us today? 
Top tips. Three more top tips. This is okay. for, for, for maybe for mental health specific. Yes, yes. All right. So first up, just really, really reflect on that definition of mental health that I shared from, from Sydney Banks. Um, your experience like we really do live life from the inside out we we think that we think that we're living it from the outside in that the things outside of us are what determine our experience of life this simply isn't true so journaling i suppose my, my top tip then would be start journaling if you're not doing so already it really will give you a stack of insights in, in into that inside out experience it does it's excellent move and move through i find that the first five days, I keep thinking, gosh, you're a whinger. Oh, my God, I'm going to stop journaling because all I'm writing is whinging. But then if you keep going, the whinging decreases and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, because you're starting to get I'm inside I'm solving some problems. problems and you're solving doing problems. Some things. Yeah. It's really, really um, good. Number two, if, if, you, if you are on medication, I can't emphasize this enough, don't just stop taking it. The discontinuation syndrome from psychiatric medication can, can be absolutely horrendous. So if you're thinking, I don't know if these meds are helping me, okay, if you want to go off them, you, you need help and support. Uh, Peter Bregan has a, a great book called Psychiatric um, uh, sorry, psychiatric drug withdrawal, which is an excellent manual for that. So if you would like to reduce your use of psychiatric meds, then definitely uh, create a plan for that and, and recruit some help. Great tip. Thank you. And, and thirdly, uh, men- <sighs> Mental health is not some distinct entity that lives separately to your physical health. So what you do to take care of your body, the food that you eat, getting sufficient sleep, getting exercise, hopefully outdoors, meaningful social contact, all these things that we know are good for people's physical health are also very unsurprisingly good for their mental health. Yes. I don't know how to write that in a short, snappy sentence. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm not so good at short and snappy. It's oh, not, it's I like the crappy food, crappy mood. Crappy that food, was crappy great. Food, yeah. Okay, all right. Why don't we make that the third tip then? Yeah, um, I, I understand how addictive junk food can be, right? I mean, it is. It's engineered that way. Um, if you need to recruit some help from somebody else to get that stuff away from you, do so. You know, find someone who can cook for you, get meal deliveries from Gardener Vegan. They're awesome. Um, <laughs> Hello, Gardener Vegan, everyone. They're in Melbourne now. Yes. Oh, August. Oh, Maybe oh. it's August they come, but they're coming very soon. Very soon, yes. Fabulous meals. So if that's what it takes to get you eating healthy, you know, having someone else cook for you, fine. I don't have a problem with that, mm. right? Because when people are depressed, they can be extremely um, uh, like it's very difficult to get motivated when you're depressed. So Absolutely. if you need to hire someone to cook for you, if you need to hire a trainer to come and knock on your door at six a.m. and drag you out for a walk, do it. Do and, it. and if you can't afford it, honestly, I think lots and lots of people that I know who could maybe can't afford a personal trainer or can't afford a meal delivery service, I'm I'm almost certain that there's someone in your area that if you just said I'm not okay, yeah. could you help me with some meals? Like, could you cook oh, yeah. extra and del- like? My, I have a friend around the corner. I'm happy to, if if she's struggling with her newborn. 
I'm so, so happy, more than happy. It yes. fills my heart with joy to deliver her some food if she's struggling. And most people that you know are kinder and more happy, yeah. more than happy to help you if you just reach out and say, look, I'm not okay today. Yeah. And people feel better when they help others. It's selfish altruism, it right? It is. It's so you're selfish doing them a altruism, favor. you are. You're doing them a favor by asking them for help because they'll feel good about helping you and then and then you're getting the help that you need to, to you know, start to lift yourself out of that Absolutely. rough. Absolutely. And there's no shame yeah. in that. I think it's no shame. It's win-win. That person's getting their good feeling Agreed. vibes from helping you and you get some food at home that's going to be hopefully good for you. Yes. This is it. Okay. This is it. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> it was so great to have you on the show. Total pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please check out Robin over at empowertotalhealth.com.au. She has everything you've ever wanted to know about nutrition and gut health, any allergies, asthma, eczema, you name it. Robin can help you. Head over there. She will sort you out. And, yeah, if you could share this episode with your family and friends, I would love that. Otherwise, I will see you all next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bags are packed. Are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road. Riding with you in the sunnier day.